The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favourite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's lovely to be here with you. This evening we'll be continuing with Jane Eyre, but first, let's take some time here to put the day behind us. Breathe in, and as you exhale, give your body a nice, big stretch. Continue to breathe deeply and evenly at your own pace. Resist the urge to twitch and fidget. Just be quietly and peacefully. Feel the weight of your body sink downwards. Release the tension in your neck. Between your eyebrows. Allow your tongue to fall from the roof of your mouth. Let your lips part slightly, naturally. Keep your even breath as we continue. In our last episode, we left Jane almost at death's door in front of a house in the moors, having been dismissed by the housekeeper. Suddenly, she heard a male voice and was taken inside by a warm fire. She was now in a parlour, surrounded by the old housekeeper, Hannah, two young ladies, Diana and Mary, and a young gentleman named St. John. They gave Jane some food and water, then asked her questions about herself. She was too weak to fully respond. Next, the housekeeper was asked to take her to a chamber to rest. For the following three days and nights, Jane lay in a stupor, She was aware, however, of the comings and goings into her room. On the fourth day, she felt well enough to rise. Her clothes had been cleaned and pressed, and she descended into the kitchen. Hannah was surprised to see her, and Jane helped her with her duties a little while they talked about the inhabitants of Moor House. They were soon met by Diana and Mary. The ladies ordered Jane to rest in the parlour with St. John, which she did reluctantly. Mr. St. John wanted to know where Jane had come from. She gave them an alias, Jane Elliot, in order to hide her identity. She explained she had no ties in the world, that all she wanted was work, of any kind to keep herself in modest living. He told her he would try to help her if he could. That is where we pick back up tonight. Jane, still at Moore House, some weeks later. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 30 The more I knew of the inmates of Moor House, the better I liked them. In a few days, I had so far recovered my health that I could sit up all day and walk out sometimes. I could join with Diana and Mary in all their occupations, converse with them as much as they wished, and aid them when and where they would allow me. There was a reviving pleasure in this company, a 
of a kind now tasted by me for the first time, the pleasure arising from perfect congeniality of tastes, sentiments, and principles. I liked to read what they liked to read. What they enjoyed delighted me. What they approved, I reverenced. They loved their sequestered home. I, too, in the grey, small, antique structure with its low roof, its latticed casements, its mouldering walls, its avenue of aged firs, all grown aslant under the stress of mountain winds, its garden dark with yew and holly, and where no flowers but of the hardiest species would bloom, found a charm both potent and permanent. They clung to the purple moors behind and around their dwelling, to the hollow vale into which their pebbly bridal path leading from their gate descended, and which wound between fern banks first, and then amongst a few of the wildest little pasture fields that ever bordered a wilderness of heath all gave sustenance to a flock of grey moorland sheep with their little mossy-faced lambs. They clung to this scene, I say, with a perfect enthusiasm of attachment. I could comprehend the feeling and share both in its strength and truth. I saw the fascination of the locality, I felt the consecration of its loneliness. My eye feasted on the outline of swell and sweep, on the wild colouring communicated to ridge and dell by moss, by heathbell, by flower-sprinkled turf, by brilliant bracken and mellow granite crag. These details were just to me what they were to them, so many pure and sweet sources of pleasure. The strong blast and the soft breeze, the rough and the halcyon day, the hours of sunrise and sunset, the moonlight and the clouded night developed for me in these regions the same attraction as for them, wound round my faculties the same spell that entranced theirs. Indoors we agreed equally well. They were both more accomplished and better read than I was, but with eagerness I followed in the path of knowledge they had trodden before me. I devoured the books they lent me. Then it was full satisfaction to discuss with them in the evening what I had perused during the day. Thought fitted thought, opinions met opinion. We coincided, in short, perfectly. If in our trio there was a superior and a leader, it was Diana. Physically, she far excelled me. She was handsome. She was vigorous. In her animal spirits, there was an affluence of life and certainty of flow, such as excited my wonder while it baffled my comprehension. I could talk a while when the evening commenced, the first gush of vivacity and fluency was gone. I was fain to sit on a stool at Diana's feet, to rest my head on her knee, and listen alternately to her and Mary while they sounded thoroughly the topic on which I had but touched. Diana offered to teach me German. I liked to learn of her. I saw the part of instructress pleased and suited her. That of scholar 
pleased and suited me no less. Our natures dovetailed. Mutual affection of the strongest kind was the result. They discovered I could draw. Their pencils and color boxes were immediately at my service. My skill, greater in this one point than theirs, surprised and charmed them. Mary would sit and watch me by the hour together. Then she would take lessons, the docile, intelligent, assiduous pupil she made. Thus occupied and mutually entertained, days passed like hours and weeks like days. As to Mr. St. John, the intimacy which had arisen so naturally and rapidly between me and his sisters did not extend to him. One reason of the distance yet observed between us was that he was comparatively seldom at home. A large proportion of his time appeared devoted to visiting the sick and poor among the scattered population of his parish. No weather seemed to hinder him in these pastoral excursions. Rain or fair, he would, when his hours of morning study were over, take his hat and, followed by his father's old pointer, Carlo, go out on his mission of love or duty. I scarcely know in which light he regarded it. Sometimes when the day was very unfavorable, his sisters would expostulate. He would then say with a peculiar smile, more solemn than cheerful, and if I let a gust of wind or a sprinkling of rain turn me aside from these easy tasks, what preparation would each sloth be for the future I propose to myself? Diana and Mary's general answer to this question was a sigh and some minutes of apparently mournful meditation. But besides his frequent absences, there was another barrier to friendship with him. He seemed of a reserved and abstracted and even of a brooding nature, zealous in his ministerial labors, blameless in his life and habits, he yet did not appear to enjoy that mental serenity, that inward content, which should be the reward of every sincere, Christian, and practical philanthropist. Often of an evening, when he sat at the window, his desk and papers before him, he would cease reading or writing, rest his chin on his hand, and deliver himself up to I know not what course of thought, but that it was perturbed and exciting might be seen in the frequent flash and changeful dilation of his eye. I think, moreover, that nature was not to him that treasury of delight it was to his sisters. He expressed once, and but once in my hearing, a strong sense of the rugged charm of the hills and an inborn affection for the dark roof and hoary walls he called home. But there was more of gloom than pleasure in the tone and words in which the sentiment was manifested, and never did he seem to roam the moors for the sake of their soothing silence, never seek out or dwell upon the thousand peaceful delights they could yield. Incommunicative as he was, some time elapsed before I had an opportunity of gauging his mind. I first got an idea of its caliber 
when I heard him preach in his own church at Morton. I wish I could describe that sermon, but it is past my power. I cannot even render faithfully the effect it produced on me. It began calm, and indeed, as far as delivery and pitch of voice went, it was calm to the end, an earnestly felt yet strictly restrained zeal breathed soon in the distinct accents and prompted the nervous language. This grew to force, compressed, condensed, controlled. The heart was thrilled, the mind astonished by the power of the preacher. Neither were softened, Throughout, there was a strange bitterness, an absence of consolatory gentleness, stern allusions to Calvinistic doctrines, election, predestination, reprobation were frequent, and each reference to these points sounded like a sentence pronounced for doom. When he had done... Instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness, for it seemed to me, I know not whether equally so to others, that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a depth where lay turbid dregs of disappointment, where moved troubling impulses of insatiate yearnings and disquieting aspirations. I was sure St. John Rivers, pure-lived, conscientious, zealous as he was, had not yet found that peace of God which passeth all understanding. He had no more found it, I thought, than had I with my concealed and racking regrets for my broken idol and lost asylum, regrets to which I have latterly avoided referring, but which possessed me and tyrannized over me ruthlessly. Meantime, a month was gone. Diana and Mary were soon to leave Moore House, and returned to the far different life and scene which awaited them as governesses in a large, fashionable, south of England city, where each held a situation in families by whose wealth and haughty members they were regarded only as humble dependents, and who neither knew nor sought out their innate excellences and appreciated only their acquired accomplishments as they appreciated the skill of their cook or the taste of their waiting woman. Mr. St. John had said nothing to me yet about the employment he had promised to obtain for me, yet it became urgent that I should have a vocation of some kind. One morning... Being left alone with him a few minutes in the parlour, I ventured to approach the window recess, which his table, chair, and desk consecrated as a kind of study, and I was going to speak, though not very well knowing in what words to frame my inquiry, for it is at all times difficult to break the ice of reserve glassing over such natures as he, when he saved me the trouble by being the first to commence a dialogue. Looking up as I drew near, You have a question to ask of me? he said. Yes, I wish to know whether you have heard of any service I can offer myself to undertake. I found or devised something for you three weeks ago, but as you seemed both useful and happy here, 
as my sisters had evidently become attached to you and your society gave them unusual pleasure, I deemed it inexpedient to break in on your mutual comfort till their approaching departures from Marsh End should render yours necessary. And they will go in three days now, I said. Yes, and when they go, I shall return to the parsonage at Morton. Hannah will accompany me, and this old house will be shut up. I waited a few moments, expecting he would go on with the subject first broached, but he seemed to have entered another train of reflection. His look denoted abstraction from me and my business. I was obliged to recall him to a theme which was of necessity, one of close and anxious interest to me. What is the employment you had in view, Mr. Rivers? I hope this delay will not have increased the difficulty of securing it. Oh no, since it is an employment which depends only on me to give and you to accept. He again paused. There seemed a reluctance to continue. I grew impatient, a restless movement or two and an eager and exacting glance fastened on his face conveyed the feeling to him as effectually as words could have done, and with less trouble. You need be in no hurry to hear, he said. Let me frankly tell you, I have nothing eligible or profitable to suggest. Before I explain... Recall, if you please, my notice, clearly given that if I helped you, it must be as the blind man would help the lame. I am poor, for I find that when I have paid my father's debts, all the patrimony remaining to me will be this crumbling grange, the row of scathed firs behind, the patch of soil with the yew trees and holly bushes in front. I am obscure. Rivers is an old name, but of the three sole descendants of the race, two earn the dependents' crust amongst strangers, and the third considers himself an alien from his native country, not only for life, but in death. Yes, in deems, and is bound to deem himself honoured by the lot, despires but after this day when the cross of separation from fleshly ties shall be laid on his shoulders when the head of that church militant of whose humblest members he is one shall give the word rise follow me st john said these words as he pronounced his sermons with a quiet deep voice with an unflushed cheek and a consecrating radiance of glance. He resumed, And since I am myself poor and obscure, I can offer you but a service of poverty and obscurity. You may even think it degrading, for I see now your habits have been what the world calls refined. Your tastes lean to the ideal your society has been at least amongst the educated. But I consider that no service degrades which can better us. I hold that the more arid and more unreclaimed the soil where the Christian laborer's task of rillage is appointed him, the scantier the mead his toil brings, the higher the honor. His, under such circumstances, is the destiny of the pioneer, and the first pioneers of the gospel were the apostles. Their captain was Jesus, the Redeemer himself. Well, I said as he again paused, proceed. He looked at me before he proceeded. Indeed, he seemed leisurely to read my face 
as if its features and lines were characters on a page. The conclusion drawn from this scrutiny he partially expressed in his succeeding observations. I believe you will accept the post I offer you, he said, and hold it a while, not permanently though, any more than I could permanently keep the narrow and narrowing, tranquil, hidden office of English country incumbent, for in your nature is an alloy as detrimental to repose as that in mine, though a different kind. Do explain, I urged when he halted once more. I will, and you shall hear how poor the proposal is, how trivial, how cramping. I shall not stay long at Morton now that my father is dead and that I am my own master. I shall leave the place, probably in the course of a twelve-month, but while I do stay, I will exert myself to the utmost for its improvement. Morton, when I came two years ago, had no school. The children of the poor were excluded from every hope of progress. I established one for boys. I mean now to open a second school for girls. I have hired a building for the purpose, with a cottage of two rooms attached to it for the mistress's house. Her salary will be £30 a year. Her house is already furnished, very simply but sufficiently, by the kindness of a lady, Miss Oliver, the only daughter of the sole rich man in my parish, Mr. Oliver, the proprietor of a needle factory and iron foundry in the valley. The same lady pays for the education and clothing of an orphan from the workhouse, on condition that she shall aid the mistress in such menial offices connected with her own house and the school, as her occupation of teaching will prevent her having time to discharge in person. Will you be this mistress? He put the question rather hurriedly. He seemed half to expect an indignant, or at least a disdainful rejection of the offer, not knowing all my thoughts and feelings, though guessing some, he could not tell in what light the lot would appear to me. In truth, it was humble, but then it was sheltered, and I wanted a safe asylum. It was plodding, but then compared with that of a governess in a rich house, it was independent, and the fear of servitude with strangers entered my soul like iron. It was not ignoble, not unworthy, not mentally degrading. I made my decision. I thank you for the proposal, Mr. Rivers, and I accept it with all my heart. That you comprehend me, he said. As a village school, your scholars will be only poor girls, cottagers' children, at the best farmers' daughters, knitting, sewing, reading, writing, ciphering will be all you have to teach. What will you do with your accomplishments? What with the largest portion of your mind, sentiments, tastes? Save them till they are wanted. They will keep, I replied. You know what you undertake, then? I do. He now smiled, not a bitter or sad smile, but one well pleased and deeply gratified. When will you commence the exercise of your function? I will go to my house tomorrow and open the school if you like, next week. Very well, so be it, he said. He rose and walked through the room. Standing still, he again looked at me. He shook his head. What do you disapprove of, Mr. Rivers? I asked. You will not stay at Morton long. No, no, 
Why? What is your reason for saying so? I read it in your eye. It is not of that description which promises the maintenance of an even tenor in life. I am not ambitious. He started at the word ambitious. He repeated, No. What made you think of ambition? Who is ambitious? I know I am. How did you find it out? I'm speaking of myself. Well, if you are not ambitious, you are... He paused. What? I asked. I was going to say impassioned, but perhaps you would have misunderstood the word and been displeased. I mean that human affections and sympathies have a most powerful hold on you. I'm sure you cannot long be content to pass your leisure in solitude, to devote your working hours to a monotonous labor, wholly void of stimulus, any more than I can be content. He added with emphasis, To live here, buried in morass, pent in with mountains, my nature that God gave me contravened, my faculties heaven bestowed, paralyzed, made useless. You hear now I contradict myself, I who preached contentment with a humble lot and justified the vocation even of hewers of wood and drawers of water in God's service. I, his ordained minister, almost rave in my restlessness. Well, propensities and principles must be reconciled by some means. He left the room. In this brief hour, I had learnt more of him than in the whole previous month, and he still puzzled me. Diana and Mary Rivers became more and more silent as the day approached for leaving their brother and their home. They both tried to appear as usual, but the sorrow they had to struggle against was one that could not be entirely conquered or concealed. Diana intimated that this would be a different parting from any they had ever yet known. It would probably, as far as St. John was concerned, be a parting for years. It might be a parting for life. He will sacrifice all to his long-framed resolves, she said. Natural affliction and feelings more potent still. St. John looks quiet, Jane, but he hides a fever in his vitals. You would think him gentle, yet in some things he is inexorable as death, and the word of it is, my conscience will hardly permit me to dissuade him from his severe decision. Certainly, cannot for a moment blame him for it. It is right, noble, Christian, but it breaks my heart. And the tears gushed to her fine eyes. Mary bent her head low over her work. We are now without a father. We shall soon be without home and brother, she murmured. At that moment, a little accident supervened, which seemed decreed by fate purposely to prove the truth of the adage that misfortunes never come singly, and to add to their distress, vexing one of the slip between the cup and the lip. St. John passed the window, reading a letter. He entered. Our Uncle John is dead, said he. Both the sisters seemed struck, not shocked or appalled, the tidings appeared in their eyes rather momentous than afflicting. Dead, repeated Diana. Yes, he replied. She riveted, a searching gaze on her brother's face. And what then? 
she demanded in a low voice. What then? Die? He replied, maintaining a marble immobility of feature. What then? Why, nothing. Read. He threw the letter into her lap. She glanced over it and handed it to Mary. Mary perused it in silence and returned it to her brother. All three looked at each other. All three smiled, a dreary, pensive smile enough. Amen. We can yet live, said Diana at last. At any rate, it makes us no worse off than we were before, remarked Mary. Only it forces rather strongly on the mind the picture of what might have been, said Mr. Rivers, and contrasts it somewhat too vividly with what is. He folded the letter, locked it in his desk, and again went out. For some minutes, no one spoke. Diana then turned to me. Jane, you will wonder at us and our mysteries she said, and think us hard-hearted beings not to be more moved at the death of so near a relation as an uncle. But we have never seen him, nor known him. He was my mother's brother. My father and he quarreled long ago. It was by his advice that my father risked most of his property in the speculation that ruined him. Mutual recrimination passed between them. They parted in anger and were never reconciled. My uncle engaged afterwards in a more prosperous undertaking. It appears he realized a fortune of £20,000. He was never married and had no near kindred but ourselves and one other person not more closely related than we. My father always cherished the idea that he would atone for his error by leaving his possessions to us. That letter informs us that he has bequeathed every penny to the other relation, with the exception of thirty guineas, to be divided between St. John, Diana and Mary Rivers for the purchase of three mourning rings. He had a right, of course, to do as he pleased, and yet a momentary damp is cast on the spirits by the receipt of such news. Mary and I would have esteemed ourselves rich with a thousand pounds each, and to St. John such a sum would have been valuable for the good it would have enabled him to do. This explanation given, the subject was dropped and no further reference made to it by either Mr. Rivers or his sisters. The next day, I left Marsh End for Morton. The day after, Diana and Mary quitted. In a week, Mr. Rivers and Hannah repaired to the parsonage, and so the old grange was abandoned. Chapter 31 My home, then, when at last I find a home, is a cottage, a little room with whitewashed walls and a sanded floor containing four painted chairs and a table, a clock, a cupboard with two or three plates and dishes, and a set of tea things in Delft. Above, a chamber of the same dimensions as the kitchen, with a deal bedstead and chest of drawers, small yet too large to be filled with my scanty wardrobe. Through the kindness of my gentle and generous friends has increased that by a modest stock of such things as are necessary. It is evening, I have dismissed, with the fee of an orange, a little orphan who serves me as a handmaid. I'm sitting alone on the hearth. This morning, the village school opened. 
I had twenty scholars, but three of the number can read, none write or cipher, several knit, and a few sew a little. They speak with the accent of the district. At present, they and I have a difficulty in understanding each other's language. I must not forget that these children are of flesh and blood as good as the scions of the gentlest genealogy, and that the seeds of excellence, refinement, intelligence, kind feeling are as likely to exist in their hearts as those of the best born. My duty will be to develop these seeds. Surely I shall find some happiness in discharging that office. Much enjoyment I do not expect in the life opening before me, yet it will, doubtless, if I regulate my mind and exert my powers as I ought, yield me enough to live on from day to day. Was I very gleeful, settled, content during the hours I passed in yonder bare humble schoolroom this morning and afternoon. Not to deceive myself, I must reply, no. I felt desolate to a degree. I felt, yes, idiot that I am, I felt degraded. I doubted I had taken a step which sank instead of raising me in the scale of social existence. I was weakly dismayed at the poverty I heard and saw around me, but let me not hate and despair myself too much for these feelings. I know them to be wrong. That is a great step gained. I shall strive to overcome them. Tomorrow, I trust, I shall get the better of them partially, and in a few weeks, perhaps, they will be quite subdued. In a few months, it is possible the happiness of seeing progress and a change for the better in my scholars may bring gratification. Meantime, let me ask myself one question. Which is better? To have surrendered to temptation, listened to passion, made no painful effort, no struggle, but to have sunk down in the silken snare, fallen asleep on the flowers covering it, wakened in a southern clime amongst the luxuries of a pleasure villa, to have been now living in France, Mr. Rochester's mistress, delirious with his love half my time, for he would, oh yes, he would have loved me well for a while. He did love me. No one will ever love me so again. I shall never more know the sweet homage given to beauty, youth, and grace, for never to anyone else shall I seem to possess these charms. He was fond and proud of me, is what no man besides will ever be. But where am I wandering, and what am I saying, above all, feeling? Whether it is better, I ask, to be a slave in a fool's paradise at Marseille, fevered with delusive bliss one hour, suffocating with the bitterest tears of remorse and shame the next, or to be a village schoolmistress, free and honest, in a breezy mountain nook in the healthy heart of England. Yes, I feel now that I was right when I adhered to principle and law and scorned and crushed the insane promptings of a frenzied moment. God directed me to a correct choice. I thank his providence for the guidance. Having brought my eventide musings to this point, I rose, 
went to my door and looked at the sunset of the harvest day and the quiet fields before my cottage, which, with the school, was distant half a mile from the village. The birds were singing their last strains. The air was mild. The dew was balm. When I looked, I thought myself happy and was surprised to find myself ere long weeping. And why? For the doom which had reft me from adhesion to my master. For him I was no more to see. For the desperate grief and fatal fury consequences of my departure, which might now, perhaps, be dragging him from the path of right, too far to leave hope of ultimate restoration thither. At this thought, I turned my face aside from the lovely sky of eve and lonely vale of Morton. I say lonely, for in that bend of it, visible to me, there was no building apparent save the church and the parsonage, half hidden in trees and, quite at the extremity, the roof of Vale Hall, where the rich Mr. Oliver and his daughter lived. I hid my eyes and leant my head against the stone frame of my door, but soon a slight noise near the wicket which shut in my tiny garden from the meadow beyond it made me look up. A dog, old Carlo, Mr. Rivers's pointer, as I saw in a moment, was pushing the gate with his nose, and St. John himself leant upon it with folded arms, his brow knit, his gaze, grave almost to displeasure, fixed on me. I asked him to come in. No, I cannot stay. I have only brought you a little parcel my sister's left for you. I think it contains a colour box, pencils and paper. I approached to take it. A welcome gift it was. He examined my face, I thought, with austerity as I came near. The traces of tears were doubtless very visible upon it. Have you found your first day's work harder than you expected? He asked. Oh no, on the contrary. I think in time I shall get on with my scholars very well. But perhaps your accommodations, your cottage, your furniture have disappointed your expectations. They are in truth scanty enough. I interrupted. My cottage is clean and weatherproof. My furniture is sufficient and commodious. All I see has made me thankful, not despondent. I'm not absolutely such a fool and sensualist as to regret the absence of a carpet, a sofa, and silver plate. Besides, five weeks ago I had nothing. I was an outcast, a beggar, a vagrant. Now I have acquaintance a home, a business. I wonder at the goodness of God, the generosity of my friends, the bounty of my lot. I do not repine. But you feel solitude and oppression. The little house there behind you is dark and empty. I've hardly had time yet to enjoy a sense of tranquility, much less to grow impatient under one of loneliness. Very well. I hope you feel the contentment you express. At any rate, your good sense will tell you that it is too soon yet to yield to the facilitating fears of Lot's wife. What you had left before I saw you, of course, I do not know, but I counsel you to resist firmly every temptation which would incline you to look back. Pursue your present career steadily some months at least. It is what I mean to do. 
I answered. St. John continued, It is hard work to control the workings of inclination and turn the bent of nature, but that it may be done, I know from experience. God has given us, in a measure, the power to make our own fate, and when our energies seem to demand a sustenance they cannot get, when our will strains after a path we may not follow, we need neither starve from inanition nor stand still in despair. We have but to seek another nourishment for the mind, as strong as the forbidden food it longed to taste, and perhaps purer, and to hew out for the adventurous foot a road as direct and broad as the one fortune has blocked up against us, if rougher than it. A year ago, I was myself intensely miserable, as I thought I had made a mistake in entering the ministry. Its uniform duties wearied me to death. I burned for the more active life of the world, for the more exciting toils of a literary career, for the destiny of an artist, author, orator, anything rather than that of a priest. Yes, the heart of a politician or a soldier, a votary of glory, a lover of renown, a luster after power, beat under my curate's surplice. Considered my life was so wretched it must be changed or I must die. After a season of darkness and struggling, Light broke, and relief fell. My cramped existence all at once spread out to a plain without bounds. My powers heard a call from heaven to rise, gather their full strength, spread their wings, and mount beyond Ken. God had an errand for me to bear which afar, to deliver it well, skill and strength, courage and eloquence, the best qualifications of soldier, statesman and orator were all needed, for these all center in the good missionary. A missionary I resolved to be. From that moment, my state of mind changed. The fetters dissolved and dropped from every faculty, leaving nothing of bondage but its galling soreness, which time only can heal. My father indeed imposed the determination, but since his death I have not a legitimate obstacle to contend with. Some affairs settled, successor for Morton provided, an entanglement or two of the feelings broken through or cut asunder, at last conflict with human weakness, which I know I shall overcome, because I have vowed that I will overcome, and I leave Europe for the East. He said this in his peculiar, subdued yet emphatic voice, looking when he had ceased speaking not at me, but at the setting sun at which I looked too. Both he and I had our backs towards the path leading up the field to the wicket. We had heard no step on that grass-grown track. The water running in the vale was the one lulling sound of the hour and scene.